I was just sitting over there thinking. It's it's been funny. The uh, last few days, my daughter Hannah has, has been really on my case about letting her open up a Facebook account. And uh, it's it's interesting as a parent and as a man about to turn 44 here. I don't know when it happened. When I when I crossed that that line of at one time being on the cutting edge of culture, but but now being in the place where I'm just struggling to keep up. And things like Facebook, I'm looking at, I'm going, is it of the devil? What's wrong with this? Why are so many people, you know? And, and I'm, but I'm so cautious, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried, I guess, as a dad, for the things that, that my kids um, are, are able to do and see. And then it's just things that I wasn't raised with. And Corey and I have had this conversation. It's just I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up with computers like my kids have. So anyway, Hannah's been talking about this, and she's been saying, Dad, I, I really would like to have a Facebook account. All my friends have a Facebook account. I'd like to be able to talk to them. And I'm like, pick up the phone, you know? <laughs> Hello, how are you doing? You know, I mean, get together with them. You have to sit there. Anyway, so last night, I decided if I'm going to let her do that, and I'm, I'm in the process of making that decision, that I'm going to open up and start a Facebook account myself so I know exactly what it is she's getting into. I know what it's about. I told her if we do this, I'm going to have her password so that I can go on to her Facebook account and see everything that she's doing. And, uh, boy, it's amazing how addictive that thing is. <laughs> I sat down and I started entering information and the next thing I know, two hours ago, I'm like, yeah, that was kind of cool. Huh? Hey, I remember that person. Yeah. And one of the things it asks for is a picture when you first open up the account. You can put a picture of yourself on it and some people don't put a picture at all and other people put something that's kind of hard to tell who it is. And so I'm going through pictures of myself and trying to decide what is the right picture to put on Rick's Facebook account. You know? I thought about putting a picture of our dog Reggie. I thought that might be fun. You know, Rick Crawford. Um, and I'm going through these different ones and there was one of me in Israel standing, it's a silhouette standing in front of the Sea of Galilee at sunset and it's really a cool picture but as I looked at it I realized it was the first time we went and it was cold so I was wearing a heavy jacket so I really looked rather overweight so I didn't want that on there and I'm thinking about all these different and then there was one of me playing guitar and I thought that's cool but I'm wearing glasses and I don't wear glasses anymore and I realized that I'm trying to put a definition of myself out there for people to see. Which then got me to thinking, how do we define ourselves? And, and how much time we spend trying to define ourselves in front of other people. And it really doesn't matter how old we get or at what point we are in life. We're still trying to present some aspect of ourselves to people. Some way that we want people to see us. You know what the Apostle John said about himself? I think it's the best self-definition for a follower of Jesus in all of Scripture. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I, I just, I'm so touched by hearing that and thinking about that. If I could put that on a Facebook account, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be it. That's really the greatest self-definition any human being can have. I'm just, I'm one of Jesus' followers and he loves me. And I wanted to share that with you this morning as we get into the, the teaching that you are the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he just loves you. Kevin, he, he just loves you. Denise, he just loves you. And for each and every one of us, when we follow in those footsteps of Jesus, that's what he has for us to say, I love you. As Jim shared to the point that I would give up my life for you. And that's good news.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us first. We thank you for choosing us before we chose you. We thank you, Father, that there is a definition for ourselves that is out there that is true and righteous and eternal and good. And it really lifts us up, Father. There is no more encouraging way to define ourselves than by the love that you've given us. Nothing, Father, brings us greater encouragement or or satisfaction or security or joy. And so we thank you for Jesus. And we ask, Lord, would you continue speaking to us this morning? Would you teach us your word and draw us closer to your heart, Father? In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to finish out 2 Kings. I know we did that on Wednesday night. If you were here Wednesday night, we did chapters 24 and 25. Finish the book. But there was something that just was sticking with me and I had to go back. I will tell you next Sunday we will start the book of Matthew. We're going to jump ahead to the New Testament and I am thrilled that we're going to do that. It's going to be a great study. Spend some time just with Jesus and the Gospel and as opposed to what we've been doing, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament and looking through that that filter of is Jesus here and and what does it tell us about Jesus, we're going to go straight to the heart of the matter, the story of his life, hear from him, see how he moved and lived and and walked, see his miracles, listen to his teachings and, and I'm thrilled that we're going there. But there's one more story here in 2 Kings that I think is worth paying attention to. It's about the last king, the final king of Judah, a king by the name of Zedekiah. 2 Kings chapter 24 and verse 18. 2 Kings 24, 18, if you'd like to turn there. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. He was the last representation of the people. The last king standing before God after 38 other kings, Israel and Judah combined, and he began his reign at the ripe old age of 21. Do you remember turning 21? Some of you haven't yet. Some of you just have. Heather, I know, just turned 21 this last week. So after worship practice on Thursday night, we all went out and got stoned. It was great. We had time together. Boy, I hope people hear sarcasm. You know, I just, I, if someone came and sat here and was, didn't get, you know, the sarcasm, they went out and got drunk? That's not right. No, it's, it's not. So we didn't. Anyway, I know that there are those who are right around the age of 21. For some of us, I mean, that, that was half a life ago for me. But I remember. I remember. For those of you who are a bit older and have some years between where you are now and when you turn 21, do you think, would you say, you had the requisite experience at that age to rule a nation? No. <laughs> now many 21-year-olds will say, oh yeah, I mean I'm of age, I'm an adult now, I have arrived, and that is exactly how I felt. That's where Zedekiah was, 21 years old and king of a nation. In charge, boss man. Experience was lacking. You know, it it seems to me that the one word that is going to define this presidential election is experience. 
And if you've been watching how interesting this last week has been, Republican candidate John McCain has chosen his running mate, Sarah Palin, or Palin, not even sure how you say it, the 44-year-old governor of Alaska and mother of five, is now the running mate to John McCain. And the first thing out of the Democrats' mouth was, (laughs) no experience. Which is exactly what the McCain campaign has been saying about Obama all along. Where's the experience? And now the question is, are they going to cancel each other out? Or are they going to continue shooting the experience arrows back and forth, back and forth throughout this campaign? Obama himself is a 47-year-old junior senator with 150 days of actual Senate experience. And we're looking at the presidency of the United States, the most powerful position in the entire world. The question is going to be one of experience. And I think it's a fair question. For anybody who would stand up and lead a country, the question has to be asked. Do you have the experience to do it? Wherever you fall in the political landscape, I want you to think about the experience that the, that the Bible ascribes to Zedekiah the last king, this 21-year-old king of Judah. Zedekiah was the son of Josiah. Now, we know that. We have to kind of do our homework a bit to figure that out. The way we know that is we realize his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Well, Hamutal was Josiah's wife. Therefore, Zedekiah is Josiah's son. He's the youngest son of Josiah. Josiah, you may recall, is the greatest king and revivalist in all of Judah's history. Possibly in all of Israel's history, back to King David. But that's not the reference that's given to Zedekiah. When we read these two verses in 18 and 19, we don't hear that he was son of Josiah. What we hear in verse 19 is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. We find out the Bible tells us he was put into power by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, not by the people. Zedekiah was a puppet king. And we discover that his connection, the the name that the Bible holds up as the picture of where Zedekiah got his ideas and, and learned how to rule, was his brother Jehoiakim. Verse 19, he did evil on the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done, and Zedekiah responded in kind. He chose as his example Jehoiakim, not Josiah, not his father, not the great revivalist, but instead the wicked son, his older brother. His experience and his behavior are biblically directly tied to this evil Jehoiakim. I turn to the Bible because I believe the best way to gain experience in this life is by the Spirit-inspired Word of God. Now we can go through all kinds of experiences in our life, but I'll tell you what, a 72-year-old man going for the presidency may have lots of life experience, but my question is, what's his experience with the Lord? As much as a 47-year-old man going for the same office, what's his experience with the Lord? And what is the true experience that any of us really have? Because I've been amazed. I see some people in their 20s who are incredibly mature. Why? Because they know the Lord. And Paul says we have the mind of Christ. That's an experience worth striving after. We have the Word in front of us. That gives us experience and understanding and wisdom that we can't get just by going out there living life. 
The Bible tells us things and prepares us in ways that no other book, no other teaching, nothing else can. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 10, verse 6, These things, talking about all that we've been reading and studying, these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Zedekiah's problem was that he drew his experience from his older brother Jehoiakim and not from the word of God. His father Josiah who began as a king at the age of 8 years old drew his experience from the word. Which is why he was a great king. But not Zedekiah. He looked at Jehoiakim and said, Yeah, that's how to rule a kingdom. That's how to live. And even in the midst of all this, God was sending His word to Zedekiah. God was talking to him through the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Ezekiel, directly. Jeremiah 37 verse 2 says, Neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. So it wasn't even about opening up the scroll and reading Torah law. He was getting a prophet sent directly to him, one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. To speak God's word. This is what's coming, Zedekiah. This is what's happening. Turn from your ways. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. Because this thing's going to unravel all around you. I've got a different kind of experience than the 21-year-old. I saw my brother rule. And that's how I'm going to choose to rule this people. Now all this being said, there's a problem which critics like to raise in regard to the scriptures. And that is that there are times we discover when Scripture itself seems to be in conflict. Where someone will say, hey, this verse says this over here, and this verse says this over here, and the the, the two are different. How do you reconcile that? And a critic of Christianity or of the Word of God would say, see, that's why I'm not going to buy any of it. Because there are contradictions in the Bible. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, In Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And I like that one. Where's my highlighter? Now that's one in my Bible. I like that. Underline it. Star. That's a promise for me. I like it. And then Paul turned around and told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4.7, We are afflicted in every way. But not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I'm not going to underline that one. Because I don't want to carry around debt. You know, I'm, I, I like the, the one about God supplying all my needs. That I can hang with. Jesus said to the apostles in the upper room, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. Beautiful words. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Someone hand me a pen. It's beautiful. Underline that one. Memorize it. But Jesus also made this statement. In Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Huh? How do you explain that one? Well, it's in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, so when we get there, I'll explain it. (laughs) Give me a little bit of time to study it. 
He said, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That does not sound like peace to me. Contradiction. Right? So I'm not going to underline that one. Jesus promised in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Oh, circle that. But Jesus also said, if anyone wishes to come after me, Matthew 16.24, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He came to give me the abundant life, but taking up my cross speaks of death. How does that work? We have seemingly conflicting statements in Scripture. People have pointed to the genealogies of Jesus. Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Totally different. They don't line up right. Contradiction. Therefore, I can't believe. Dang, the contradictions so-called in Scripture, when truly looked at, they further serve to prove the poignant relevance of the Word of God in our lives. What do you mean by that? I mean that the Word rings true in every situation of life. It's no more contradictory than the human experience itself. I can be doing great today and be in, on my face in sorrow tomorrow. Is that a contradiction? It just happens to be reality. I can be praising on the mountains of glory... Or I can be crawling through the valley of the shadow of death. Is that a contradiction? Or is it just life? The word gang reaches us in real life. Jesus' words speak to us wherever we are. He finds us in whatever circumstance we may be. From the heights of joy and in the cellar of sorrow. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. This is not a word, gang, that made sense in one culture or fit one generation, but is now yellowed and crusty and irrelevant with age. This is a word that in every case speaks to every aspect of our lives. Which is why I trust it so much. The word of God speaks today. But when it came to God's word, Zedekiah was not listening. He was not paying attention. Maybe it's because he thought he was getting conflicting messages and he couldn't work it out. I don't think that's the whole reason, but I think it may have been part of his problem. What do you mean, conflicting messages? Well, we learned Wednesday night... That there were two well-known prophets alive and, and speaking to Zedekiah during his reign as Judah was falling prey to Babylon. Jeremiah was the one prophet, Ezekiel was the other. And both these men were sent by God to Zedekiah to speak to him. God gave his word directly. He sent two specific messages to this young, inexperienced king. One coming through each prophet. But on the surface, when you read these two messages, they contradict each other. So if you were Zedekiah, the inexperienced, unlearned, non-Bible-fed king, listening to a message from Jeremiah and a message from Ezekiel, and they're not making sense together, they're in contradiction, what do you do with that? What Zedekiah did was just cast it out. Neither one must be right because they don't make sense together. I want you to see these messages. Turn with me first to Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. We'll read these in context. 
Beginning in verse 1, Jeremiah 34, 1. Jeremiah is toward the center, a little past the center of your Bibles. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, with all the kingdoms of the earth that were under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and against all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. You will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand. And you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you will not die by the sword. You will die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you, and they will lament for you, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. It's a little disturbing, but it's also encouraging. You're going to come face to face with the king of Babylon. You're going to see him. You're going to go into captivity, but guess what? You're not going to be murdered. They're not going to take your life. And as a matter of fact, when you die... People will lament you. There will be those who miss you. It's not so bad. It's a little bit despairing, but not horrible. But notice the specificity of this prophecy that Zedekiah heard. You'll see the king of Babylon eye to eye. You're going to speak to him face to face, and you will go into Babylonian captivity. He says that very clearly. So now, Zedekiah has heard this. Turn over to Ezekiel, a couple of books to your right. Ezekiel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I have a few verses to read to get up to the one I want you to see, so just follow along. It's an interesting story. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel's writing, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear. For they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare yourself baggage for exile. And go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. Bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulders in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. God was very into word pictures and he was trying to help the children of Israel see exactly what was going on. And so Ezekiel says, I did so as I had been commanded. By day I brought out my baggage like the baggage of an exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands. I went out in the dark and carried the baggage on my shoulder in their sight. Now can you imagine this? The people know this is the prophet Ezekiel. Someone's like, Ezekiel's walking up the street with his luggage. What's going on? I don't know. Let's go see. It's got to be another one of those weird Ezekiel things. And they go out and watch, and there he goes up the street, you know, dragging his little baggage cart behind him and bags on his shoulders, and he gets to the wall and he starts to dig, digs a hole through it as the people are watching this, carries all his bags through to the other side as if he himself is going into exile, 
And in the morning, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, this rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem. That's Zedekiah. As well as all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am assigned to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder. In the dark he will go out. They will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. Pay attention to that, you're going to see it in just a minute. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. Verse 13, I will also spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Watch this, yet he will not see it. Though he will die there. Okay, Zedekiah hears this. A very specific prophecy. Just like Jeremiah's. Now Ezekiel saying, Zedekiah, you're going to go into captivity in Babylon. But here's the difference. You're not going to see it. Zedekiah's thinking, well, Jeremiah said I was going to see the king face to face. And now Ezekiel's saying, you're not going to see the land at all. You will not see Babylon. These prophets better get their story straight. There's one saying one thing and one saying another thing. And from Zedekiah's perspective, they contradict each other. So someone's not telling the truth. And I'm going to guess neither one were. I'm going to guess they're just making this whole thing up. It's one of the classic excuses for someone to reject Scripture. Words in conflict. Contradictions. Scriptures that are flip-flopping, to use a well-worn term. Go back right now to Matthew or to 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25 in verse 1. Watch this play out. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. This would be, the Bible students know, 588 B.C. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by the way of the Arabah. So verse 4 tells us exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. They went through the wall. They escaped through the wall. They made their way at night, digging a hole through the wall. And by the way, where they went through the wall, by that gate, beside the king's garden, they went through a place that would later be called Golgotha. Their escape was through the place of Calvary, the cross. Interesting note. But it says they went by the way of the Arabah. Verse 5, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king, and they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. Riblah. Where, where's Riblah? It's important to know this. Riblah is not in Babylon. It's actually on the Orontes River, which was northwest of Damascus, where today is the border between Lebanon and Israel. If you know the geography over there, you've got Israel, and above it is Lebanon, and then you've got Syria, and then Jordan on down around, Egypt down on the other side. 
This is where they took Zedekiah. This is the place that he saw King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not in Babylon when Zedekiah saw him. He was fighting on another front. And so there he saw this king, just as Jeremiah prophesied. He saw him eye to eye and face to face. Just like the Lord said he would. Watch what happens, verse 7. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Which is exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. You're going to go to Babylon, but you're not going to see it. Now this is simple for us. We just look back and go, oh yeah, it works out historically. But if you are not in the place of looking back in history, but you're trying to look ahead, and you get these two prophecies, one says you're going to see the king of Babylon, and the other one says you're not going to see Babylon. What would you assume? Someone's got to be wrong. Because I've got to go to Babylon to see the king of Babylon, but if I go to Babylon and I can't see the Babylon, how can I see the king of Babylon? You see where I'm going with this. And this is where Zedekiah was at. Just as Ezekiel spoke, just as Jeremiah spoke, both men were absolutely 100% correct in the prophecy they brought Zedekiah. He just didn't know it yet until he experienced it. Fathers, listen to me. Zedekiah paid the price of every father who has ever lived wickedly before his children. Zedekiah, before his eyes were put out, the last thing he saw was his sons killed. Slaughtered before his, it was the last thing he would ever see, and then he would be blinded. So his final memory was watching the death of his sons. The wages of sin is death. And Zedekiah chose to live a wicked life before his children, and they paid the ultimate price for his sin as well as for theirs. You know what Zedekiah's problem was? He couldn't see his way clear to believe the word of God. He couldn't see with spiritual eyes when the word was brought to him. So he saw with eyes of the flesh and he couldn't believe what was coming. But how could he really know these prophets were legit? Because they spoke the legitimate word. And here's the thing you've got to understand. For for Zedekiah, if there was nothing that had come before and these two men came to him saying they were speaking in the words of God, I could understand maybe it would be difficult to trust him. But Zedekiah had Torah. His father Josiah had recovered it and pronounced it before the land. Zedekiah had heard Torah law. He knew exactly what Moses said was coming. And all Jeremiah and Ezekiel did was proclaim what Moses originally said was going to happen. They proclaimed the same word that had been given. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 28.32 Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually but there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat the produce of your ground and all your labors and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Listen to this verse. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. And I really wonder if it's talking about Zedekiah whose last sight would be the murder of his children before his very eyes. The prophecy of Scripture is absolutely profound in its precision. People say, why do you believe that word? And oftentimes my first answer is prophecy. Because God proclaimed it and it came to pass. And we have seen it every single time fulfilled exactly And if the eyes of our hearts are open, we can see how it all comes together in one moment, in one place. But I'm not talking about Zedekiah. I'm talking about in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, everything becomes clear. 
The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.14 their minds were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same old veil remains unlifted because it is removed. Listen, it is removed in Christ. Why don't people understand Old Testament Scripture? Because it's not removed until you're in Christ. You try and study it and, and, and get a grip on it without Jesus, you're not going to understand it. The prophecies are not going to make sense until Christ comes in your life. And then the veil is removed and suddenly you begin to go, oh, that's a picture of Jesus. Oh, I see Jesus there. Oh, that sacrifice is about Jesus. I get it. Because the veil is removed in Christ. To this day, Paul writes, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I like to tell people when they first become Christians, given their lives to Jesus, I like to tell them, you know, you're going to start understanding Scripture better than you ever have before. Really? Yeah. Because in Jesus the veil is removed. He makes everything clear. The puzzle pieces fit into place. Think about this. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How does He supply all my needs according to His riches? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. It's not talking about just worldly material supply. It's talking about how God supplies the riches of eternity for my life. I get it. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And the Christian person walking in Jesus understands what Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He promised a peace that you could not understand outside of Him. A peace that carries you through times of turmoil and trial and struggle. A peace that that a military man could have in the midst of warfare. The peace that passes understanding. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, My peace I leave with you. We see that peace, by the way, personified in Jesus on the cross. Talk about a man in turmoil. And yet Jesus had tremendous peace on the cross while stretched out, being made fun of, bleeding out of his hands and feet and his forehead and out of his back. Jesus, as he hung there, had the peace of mind to look down and say, John, will you take care of mom for me? Incredible. If I was on the cross, the last person on my mind would be my mother. Sorry, mom. But Jesus had the peace of mind not only to do that, but to offer salvation to one of the thieves hanging beside him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Because Jesus had a peace that passes comprehension, passes understanding. That's the peace that he offers us. And no wonder when it was all said and done. Mark tells us the centurion who was standing right in front of Jesus saw the way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the Son of God. Why did he say that? Because he saw the way Jesus died. This centurion no doubt had seen hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions. But this man was different. This man had peace. Well, in Jesus, the veil is removed. In Jesus, we can see clearly. Everything becomes abundantly clear. Things that we can't see on our own, we recognize and realize in Christ Jesus. You might ask, but 
okay, how do we learn to see these things for ourselves? I'm often asked, especially on Wednesdays, people will say, how did you discover that parallel? And where, where did, how did you catch that nugget of truth? And often what I hear is, I would read right past that. And we'll point something out as we're studying through the Bible. And someone will say, had you not said that, Rick, I wouldn't have seen it. To which I reply, I read right past most of this stuff the first seven or eight times too. I mean, it takes going back and read and again. And there's, some, there's a reality to Bible study. And I, I've shared this before. It takes a lot of prayer and a lot of prep, preparation. There's no shortcut. However, I want you to understand something else this morning. Something had happened to me several years ago that has shaped my understanding of Scripture like nothing else. And I believe it is the, the key to knowing the Word. It is the key to seeing what God wants us to see when we read His Word. You want to know what it is? Look through the promises to the person. Look through the promises to the person. A lot of times we stop at the promise. Or we stop at the verse. And we don't go the next step, which is where is Jesus in this? What does this say to me either about Jesus or what is Jesus saying through this? The promises are great, don't get me wrong. The passages are wonderful. The story's amazing. But if we stop there, we miss the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of the entire Bible, which is to point us to Jesus Christ. He is the issue. So look through the promises to the person. Let me show you something else here. Turn over to Hebrews, all the way over in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2. Paul, who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, is laying out a picture here of who Jesus is. And at the beginning, he starts to make some comparisons. One of the comparisons he makes is to angels. And he's showing the readers how Jesus is, is so much better than angels. That he's not just an angel who came down, as by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus, Messiah, was just Michael, the archangel who became a man. Well, the Hebrew writer, Paul, says something different. But listen closely to this. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how then will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Now watch this. For He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. In other words, He's talking about the world to come. He's talking about creation. And God did not make angels the boss of creation. God did not put angels in charge of the world when he created it. Read on, verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you, are, you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Or some of your translations say for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands, and have put all things in subjection under his feet. Gang, this is talking about, he's quoting Psalm 8, and this is talking about not Jesus, but man. 
that God put all things in subjection under our feet, under the feet of man. That was the original intention with creation. Read on. He says, you put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But we do not yet see all things subjected to him. In one verse, Paul lays it out. He says, God gave us authority over the earth. He put us in charge, everything in subjection under us, and yet we look around and go, that's not what we see. I can't even keep the weeds out of my front yard. Much less have control and authority over this planet. And do we? What a mess. And we look around, and just as Paul writes, we do not see all things subjected to him. We don't see it. He promised it. He said it's yours. But we don't see it. Look at verse 9. But we do see Him. We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for every one. If man is an authority over the earth, why does man die? If man is an authority over the earth, why are things such a mess? Why is it that what we see does not match up with what God promised? The reason is we're not there yet. So we can't see it. But we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus. That's the key. That's the whole issue. We don't see how it's going to work together, but we do see Jesus. I don't see how I'm going to get through tomorrow, but I see Jesus. I'm not sure how this mess of my life is going to get worked out, but I see Jesus. We don't see now the end result of God's intended purposes, but we do see Jesus. And so we have confidence that He's going to do what He said He wanted to do. And how did Jesus go about revealing his promises to us? Through his suffering, through the pain that he bore at Calvary. Through his death on the cross. We see his glory in the resurrection. We do see Jesus. And gang, without the filter of the cross, we can't see. We, like Zedekiah, miss it. We don't understand. Peace is not about personal comfort. It's about knowing Jesus. The abundant life is not about material possession. It's about the satisfaction that comes from serving the Savior. That's where, you know what, that's where the, the, the faith-only people have got it wrong. Those who stand up and preach prosperity gospel, this is where they miss it. The, the abundant life is not about abundance of stuff. It is about an abundance of relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is greater than anything I might ever own. And that's why Paul said, let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We do see Jesus. We don't look to dynamic pastors or teachers or candidates who stand up on Romanesque stages proclaiming change to the world. That's not where my hope is. We see Jesus. We see Jesus. 
Okay, and we don't look to great men because at best they're going to cloud your vision. At worst, they will blind you. Zedekiah looked to a great man. A great man. The greatest man alive at the time. Do you know what the Bible calls Nebuchadnezzar? Do you know what the name was given to this king of Babylon who was the greatest king? He was, in fact, if you look historically, probably the greatest dictator in the entire history of the world was Nebuchadnezzar. Complete and absolute world domination by this one guy. And the Bible calls him this, Ezekiel 26, verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, listen to me, king of kings. King of kings. Zedekiah hears from these two prophets, I'm going to go up and I'm going to see the king of kings face to face, and eye to eye. I'm going to go into captivity. So I'm going to go and I'm going to be under the king of kings, but I'm going to see him, man. And we're going to be mono y mono. This is, this is going to be, you know, Judah, you need to pay attention because your king is going to go be talking to the king of kings right here. I'm going to see him face to face. He comes eye to eye with a man called King of Kings. And what happens to Zedekiah? His children are murdered and his sight is removed. And we can do that. We go up to people who we think are great men, great women, great leaders. We say, oh, they've got the answers. And we look at them and we lose our sight. Because the only way to truly see is through Jesus Christ. He is our vision. We don't understand exactly what the Lord is doing in the world, but we do see Jesus. And so Revelation 19.16 tells us on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so next week we're going to start spending some time there with the gospel of the great king. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's taken me several weeks to realize what you were doing. As we've been studying through the books of First and Second Kings, and First and Second Samuel, and looking not just at the history of the people, but the kings that were raised up when, when the people, Lord, cried out and said, Give us a king like like the nations had well you did that but now I understand all of this all of these kings Lord you have given us to show us the run up to the only one who is truly worth calling king and that's Jesus we have already sung this morning Lord Jesus you are our king and we put our trust and our faith in you and it's, it's my deepest prayer, Lord, that we will be drawn closer into our relationship with you, that we would press in, Jesus, to who you are. That we would walk more intimately with you. That we would cast off all others, Lord, and just fix our eyes on you. And Jesus, as we do so, we pray for your vision. You know, your word tells us without vision the people perish. And we pray that we would have eyes to see. You are King Jesus. Oh, this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus and accepted Him as Lord and Savior, you can have your eyes open today. And I invite you to ask Him into your life and into your heart. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I want to see. And so forgive me of my sin as I see the cross. Forgive me of my sin as I see the resurrection and trust in you. 
I declare you Lord and King over my life. Come and save me, Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I invite you to pray with me as well this morning. Just ask these words to the Lord in your heart today. Lord, help me to see through Jesus' eyes. Help me to look at the world, Jesus, the way you did. I pray that I might be filled up with compassion because you were compassionate. I pray that I might respond to needs, whether in prayer or action, because that's the way you were and the way you are. Lord Jesus, give me your sight until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.